the secrets they keep are powerful enough to bring down companies and ruin lives. The reasons for exposing highly classified information may vary, but one thing's for certain. The world will never be the same once they do. Enjoy this six-part series on the history and impact of whistleblowers, brought to you by the podcast Espionage. You can binge more true stories of intrigue, secrecy, and covert operations by following Espionage free and only on Spotify. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad, too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money. Up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Money Maker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. The year was 1772. Benjamin Franklin sat at his Craven Street writing desk, despondently shuffling through the pile of papers in front of him. Outside, in the rain, London clattered about as usual. But Franklin's mind was far away, on the American colonies. Things had started to go sour between the British and the colonists with the Stamp Act of 1765. The 13 colonies resented the extra taxes the act loaded on them, and all to fund England's wars, in which the colonists wanted no part. Plus, the colonies had no representation in Parliament, so why should Parliament tax them? The act had been repealed after a year in 1766, but things had only escalated from there. British authorities even killed several protesters. Now, Franklin was sure he knew why. It was all thanks to these damn letters sitting on his desk. They were written by the tyrannical governor of Massachusetts, Thomas Hutchinson, to members of the British government. The governor was spreading lies and misinformation across the Atlantic, poisoning the relationship between metropole and colonies. But perhaps, perhaps now, these letters could be the salvation of that relationship. If he could get these missives back to the colonies and show leaders that there was a clear source for all the bad feeling and resentment, perhaps he could help avoid a war. Of course, sharing private correspondence publicly wasn't exactly proper, but these letters concerned official government business, and the people deserved to see them. This is Espionage, a ParCast original. 
I'm Carter Roy. Normally, we take things spy by spy, mission by mission, but for the next six weeks, we'll be doing something a little different. We're going to be deep diving into one particular kind of espionage, whistleblowing. We'll delve back into the history of the practice to understand how historical circumstance, law, and psychology have shaped whistleblowing as we know it today. But mostly, we'll be focusing on one of the most infamous modern players in the whistleblowing game, WikiLeaks. That means we'll be talking about Julian Assange, about Chelsea Manning, and, of course, about Edward Snowden. This week, we're charting the modern origins of whistleblowing, which reach all the way back to a surprising source, Benjamin Franklin. We'll also look at how whistleblowing has developed into the 21st century and how legal consequences have evolved to keep up with it. You can find all episodes of Espionage and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. To stream Espionage for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Espionage in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram, at ParCast, and Twitter, at ParCast Network. Whistling evokes pleasant images. A quiet country lane, a sailor on a sun-bleached deck, a walk downtown at the beginning of spring. Less so blowing a whistle. That means to sound the alarm, to alert the people of something wrong, to call attention to danger or impropriety. These less charming associations have been around since the 19th century when police would blow their whistles to alert a crowd to danger or crime. From there, it would be another century before the words whistle and blower merged into a single word with its own specific unique meaning. Whistleblowers are those who inform on a person or organization engaged in an illicit activity in either the private or public sector. But of course, words often evolve to describe a phenomenon that's already happening. And that's certainly the case with whistleblowing. The modern origins of whistleblowing stretch all the way back to the days of the 13 American colonies, and none other than the legendary Benjamin Franklin. Franklin was a colonial born and bred. In fact, he was so much a colonial that representing the colony's interests was his job. By 1772, he had been working as a diplomat in London for 15 years. But for all his loyalty to the colonists, Franklin, after so many years in England, understood the British overlords, even liked them. Naturally, the rising discontentment across the Atlantic put him in a bit of a bind. Massachusetts, particularly, was quickly simmering towards a boiling point after the Boston Massacre, when several Bostonians were shot and killed by British soldiers in the midst of a protest. But Franklin saw a clear culprit for those tensions, Massachusetts Governor Thomas Hutchinson. Hutchinson was an extremely enthusiastic enforcer of the British Crown's repressive measures in the colonies, like taxation without representation. 
but what worried Franklin even more was a series of letters he had gotten his hands on from Hutchinson to British ministers back in England. These letters, Franklin believed, showed that England's bad feelings toward the colonies didn't stem from the parliamentary ministers themselves, but rather from the lies and suggestions that were being fed to them by Hutchinson. One particular phrase in the letters encapsulated this idea. Hutchinson had written, there must be an abridgment of what are called English liberties in Massachusetts. That is to say, he was encouraging the British government to repress the American people, deprive them of their rights, and generally treat them like trash. And that's exactly what happened. Franklin was appalled. One man's petty dislike of the colonists had led them all to the brink of war. His actions were despicable and deadly. This was not the behavior of a leader. According to whistleblowing expert and University of Maryland political psychology professor, Dr. C. Frederick Alford, Franklin's shocked horror at Hutchinson's behavior is not unusual for whistleblowers. They often seem to have missed the memo that dark deeds happen behind the closed doors of powerful people and are genuinely horrified when faced with that reality. Perhaps it's the jolt of that horror that pushes them from moral outrage to action. In any case, Franklin made a bold choice. He wrapped up the letters and sent them to Thomas Cushing, the Speaker of the Massachusetts Assembly. And just like that, he became the first whistleblower in modern history. What came next would likewise set the precedent for whistleblowers to come. In the note he added to the packet, Franklin asked that the letters be kept private. But the colonists were much too angry for that. Mr. Cushing, irate, passed Franklin's packet around the assembly. Then the assembly passed them off to the newspapers. Before long, Hutchinson's letters were on the front page of every paper in Boston. What Cushing and his political allies did respect was Franklin's wish that his name be kept secret. Still, soon enough, the speculation about where the letters had come from got so intense that Franklin resigned, decided to come forward and take responsibility for his handiwork. After all, despite the fact that the letters had gone public, he knew he'd done the right thing by blowing the whistle and exposing Hutchinson. Surely the Brits would understand that, perhaps even thank him. But Franklin was wrong. Instead of praise, he received a verbal berating from the entirety of the British Parliament. Franklin was accused of trying to incite rebellion, of illegally distributing private correspondence, even of scheming to become Massachusetts governor himself. Then, while he wasn't charged with any criminal offenses, he was summarily dismissed from his position as postmaster general of the colonies. Franklin was horrified. This animosity was the opposite of what he had hoped to achieve. But Parliament's rabid attacks did convince him of one thing. His efforts at playing peacemaker were futile. So he left London and went all in with the colonists. Then, luckily for him, they came out of their revolution victorious. 
While victors write the historical record, Franklin's sullied reputation was uh, no longer sullied, in America at least. He'd contributed to the revolution, and his whistleblowing was lauded as a patriotic act. One possible response whistleblowers can hope for. Still, the vile accusations Franklin received from the Brits hint at the other possible response. Whistleblowers are often seen as traitors, parasites who feed on and then betray institutional trust. In the coming years, other whistleblowers would face similar accusations, often after naively expecting positive responses to their actions. Whistleblower expert Dr. Alford suggests that this naivete is a unifying psychological trait of many whistleblowers. They take action without understanding the breadth of possible consequences. But until the 20th century, as with Franklin, accusations of wrongdoing would largely stay out of the courts, and they'd often be mixed with praise. In fact, in the 19th century, the American government encouraged whistleblowers, at least those coming forward against private industry. Namely, with the 1863 False Claims Act, more commonly known as the Lincoln Law, thanks to the president who instituted it. During the Civil War, both sides of the conflict were overrun with fraudulent suppliers looking to make a quick buck at the expense of the troops for example, by selling them rotten food or lame horses. The Lincoln Law sought to curb this kind of unscrupulous fraud by encouraging citizens to blow the whistle on private agencies. If a fraudulent government contractor was prosecuted and then fined, the whistleblower would be awarded a portion of that fine. But protection for whistleblowing only applied to private business. For example, the infamous muckrakers, or investigative journalists of the progressive era in the late 19th and early 20th century, weren't directly protected by the Lincoln Law. They were often uncovering government corruption, as well as corporate monopolies that were defrauding the American people. But the muckrakers were protected by another time-honored American tradition, journalistic privilege. Thanks to America's emphasis on freedom of the press, they weren't faced with legal repercussions for their work. Journalistic privilege, along with the Lincoln Law, created some precedent for legal protection when it came to exposing the government's corruption. But unfortunately for whistleblowers, since the 20th century, that protection has been paired with plenty of opportunities for prosecution. Coming up, the verbal abuse suffered by whistleblowers is transformed into crippling legal punishment. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cash back rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of Big Give Week's 15% cash back. 
you won't see higher cashback rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now, back to the story. America's first whistleblower, Benjamin Franklin, is remembered fondly by history. After all, his whistleblowing supported an ultimately successful revolution. The century following his actions was fairly kind to whistleblowers too, protecting them both legally and with journalistic privilege. But in the 20th century, American whistleblowers started to find themselves up against a wall of harsh legal consequences, including the death penalty. The shift towards aggressive legal repercussions for whistleblowing came in the midst of World War I with the Espionage Act of 1917. The product of a growing paranoia over government secrets leaking out to wartime enemies This act targeted Americans who delivered information relating to national defense to someone who was not entitled to have it, and it authorized their punishment with the worst possible consequences. That is to say, they could face the death penalty. The Espionage Act has been amended and disputed in legal courts since its passing, often to allow broader application and stiffer penalties. It remains on the books to this day. The act has been used to prosecute spies, per its name, but in more recent years, it is most commonly used to justify prosecution of whistleblowers. That's not to say all Americans agree with these harsh legal consequences for whistleblowing or think pairing it with espionage is fair. In fact, as the war in Vietnam raged through the 1960s and 70s, and opposition to the American government grew, transparency became an increasingly urgent cause. The Freedom of Information Act, instituted in 1967, was one result of this urgency. The act increased journalists, scholars, and even private citizens' ability to demand government information be declassified. But to ask for something to be declassified you first have to know it exists, which means someone on the inside has to bring it out. That is, a whistleblower. And to many Americans, anyone who was brave enough to shed light on the crimes of the government was a true patriot, despite the Espionage Act. For example, Daniel Ellsberg, whose name for a certain generation of Americans is synonymous with the term whistleblower. Ellsberg had the pedigree of a good, conservative patriot, the kind who would always follow the rules. He was a Harvard grad and a friend of Henry Kissinger's. He served as a U.S. Marine Corps officer from 1954 to 1957 and worked as a strategic analyst at the Rand Corporation and the Department of Defense. He'd even been an early supporter of U.S. involvement in Indochina, a precursor to the Vietnam War. In 1967, 
35-year-old Ellsberg seemed like a perfect candidate to help prepare the Defense Department's brief, Report of the Office of the Secretary of Defense Vietnam Task Force, or as it would eventually become known, the Pentagon Papers. The report aimed to take a candid look at the Vietnam War effort, and it was a monumental undertaking. Drawing from classified archival material at the Department of Defense, the State Department, and the CIA, it mapped the U.S.'s actions and their success, or lack thereof. One key section of the report examined the U.S.'s role in overthrowing South Vietnam's president in 1963. Another concluded that the violent, intensive bombing of North Vietnam had done little to win the war. Both were things the U.S. government had publicly lied about. By the time it was completed in 1969, the report contained 3,000 pages of narrative along with 4,000 pages of supporting documents. And Daniel Ellsberg had changed his mind about supporting the war in Vietnam. This war simply wasn't worth the cost. The U.S. was clearly failing to make progress, and to top it all off, the government was blatantly lying to its citizens about it. Ellsberg was a patriot, just as the Defense Department knew when they put him on the report. As he put it in 2017, I am a patriot, and that has never changed. But his perception of what was patriotic suddenly differed dramatically from the government's. He was convinced the American people had the right to know about the contents of this report. He had to blow the whistle on the U.S. government. This was a radical decision, but the aim of the decision was not, nor was the method behind it. In a 2016 New Yorker article, renowned social scientist Malcolm Gladwell pointed to a certain traditionalism in Ellsberg's actions, as well as most pre-internet age whistleblowing. Like Benjamin Franklin, Ellsberg was an insider, deeply ingrained in the political system of his day, including everything from the prerequisite university education to his acquaintances in the Senate and White House. As such, he valued the political system and the mechanisms of government, including its use of information leaks. That's right. Gladwell points out that despite laws like the Espionage Act of 1917, Washington runs on spilled secrets. Citing the work of David Posen, a Columbia law professor, Gladwell explains, One estimate suggests that between 1949 and 1969, 2.3% of the front-page stories in The Times and The Washington Post were based on government leaks. Another study looked at just the first six months of 1986 and found that 147 stories in the country's eight major newspapers were based on leaks. But not every Washington insider who spills a secret to the press is considered a whistleblower or someone who is deliberately exposing the government to public censure. That's because they largely keep their leaks small, tactful, even if they are damaging to the government. It's when a leak lacks discretion, when it shares too much, that it becomes whistleblowing. 
But Ellsberg was committed to maintaining discretion with his leak. For example, he decided it wasn't prudent to share certain parts of the full Pentagon report, namely those dealing with the ongoing diplomacy issues and POW exchanges. He believed in the need for government secrecy on some subjects. What he didn't believe in was the government spreading bald-faced lies to the American people. Just like Benjamin Franklin, Ellsberg wanted to hold the government accountable by releasing documents that would alert the American public to those lies specifically, even if that meant that in the eyes of the White House, he wasn't maintaining adequate discretion and thus was eligible for legal punishment, including the death penalty. At first, Ellsberg went to several members of Congress with a report for assistance. If they brought forward the Pentagon Papers on the Senate floor, they'd be safe from legal prosecution under the Espionage Act. But the senators were unconvinced that the thousands of pages in the document were salacious enough to grab the attention of the public. They did nothing. Still, Ellsberg was undeterred. Displaying somewhat obsessive tendencies, another psychological commonality Dr. Alford has noted amongst whistleblowers, Ellsberg painstakingly Xeroxed the report, page by page, at the advertising office of a friend. Then, in 1971, he gave portions of the report to scholars at the Institute for Policy Studies, and then to the New York Times and Washington Post. The fallout came quickly. Beginning on June 13th, the New York Times published a scathing series of front-page articles about the most damning secrets and lies exposed by the Pentagon Papers. After the third article appeared, the U.S. government filed a restraining order to block any further articles, claiming they were a threat to national security. In response, the Times, in collaboration with the Washington Post, filed a suit demanding the right to publish. And on June 30th, 1971, the U.S. Supreme Court determined that publishing the contents of the report was not a threat to national security. In the instantly legendary case of New York Times Company v. United States, the Supreme Court voted 6-3 in favor of the newspapers. Unfortunately for Ellsberg, this vote for free speech and transparency didn't help whistleblowers directly. Amidst all the public drama surrounding the leak, the whistleblower himself couldn't hide from the fallout. Too many people knew Ellsberg's name, journalists, academics, senators. It was floating around in certain New York and Washington circles, and the FBI had its ears to the ground. So on June 28th, two days before the Supreme Court gave its final verdict, Ellsberg turned himself in to the U.S. Attorney's Office in Boston, publicly stating his motivations for whistleblowing. He said, I felt that as an American citizen, as a responsible citizen, I could no longer cooperate in concealing the information from the American public. I did this clearly at my own jeopardy, and I am prepared to answer to all the consequences of this decision. The consequences which, under the Espionage Act, might include death. Ellsberg was right to suspect a harsh response. He faced felony charges for espionage, as well as charges of theft and conspiracy. 
and at first, the government's case was looking quite good. At the start of the trial, the judge refused to hear why Ellsberg had turned whistleblower. This was apparently irrelevant. But then the case took a surprising, or in retrospect, perhaps not so surprising, turn. Several Nixon aides tried to break into Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office and steal his medical files. After that, the case was thrown out. Against all odds, Ellsberg got out of the Pentagon paper affair not only with his life, but without jail time. Meanwhile, he also garnered the support of a large swath of the American public. He ended up on the same end of the whistleblower spectrum as Benjamin Franklin. They got off scot-free from the wrath of the authorities who decried their actions as subversive and dangerous, and in Ellsberg's case, anti-American. Those who called them true patriots were there to prop them up. Not all whistleblowers would be lauded as heroes, however, nor end up with their freedom. Remember, Ellsberg was a consummate insider as well as a dissenter, who was willing to define his patriotism against the dogma of the executive branch. There was something safe about the game he played. After all, what he was doing was simply taking the Washington tradition of feeding the press insider tidbits and pushing it too far for the White House's comfort. Plus, he was fighting against an administration that was quickly falling out of favor with the U.S. public. In 1972, just a year after Ellsberg blew the whistle, the Watergate scandal would start to unravel, revealing the Nixon White House's penchant for dirty tricks like bugging political opponents and breaking into the DNC's headquarters. The scandal came to light in large part thanks to the leaks of yet another infamous whistleblower, known for decades as Deep Throat. Deep Throat, like Ellsberg, was a Washington insider. While he was able to keep his real identity a secret for decades, he was anonymously lauded as a hero, even more widely than Ellsberg had been. After all, he revealed the darkest secrets of a corrupt government. But this generation of whistleblowers... Insiders prowling through filing cabinets in their offices and taking the papers they found to the Washington Post was coming to an end. As the 20th century came to a close and the internet age roared to a start, a new breed reared up to take their place. And with them, public perception of whistleblowing was about to get much more fraught. These modern whistleblowers would share some of the traits of earlier generations, a certain moral conservatism and horror at abuses of power, blindness to the potential negative outcomes of whistleblowing, obsessive personalities, and strong attention to detail. But they were often inspired by the tradition of earlier leakers. These new whistleblowers played by different rules. They snuck up from the margins, not the centers of power, and they struck fear and judgment into the hearts of far more Americans than their forebears ever did. Because, unlike Ellsberg, they didn't seem to respect the idea that governments need some secrets. They didn't seem to respect government at all. 
They wanted radical transparency, everything in the open, even if that created chaos, anarchy. If people got hurt in the process, well, the truth was worth it. Coming up, a new, more radical era of whistleblowing. Now, back to the story. Daniel Ellsberg is, for many Americans, the archetypal whistleblower. In 1971, he shared a Xerox copy of the so-called Pentagon Papers with the New York Times. Nixon's White House tried to take him down for it, but in the end, he escaped legal ramifications for his actions. Ellsberg largely escaped moral condemnation, too. Some people disagreed with what he'd done. Many supported him. But ultimately, few people saw him as a menace threatening American order and government. This was not the case for whistleblowers of the 21st century. Today, the tools available to whistleblowers have drastically shifted, allowing whistleblowers themselves to shift, too. First, there's the internet, plain and simple, and the general shift towards speedier, broader access to information that it has facilitated. This goes hand in hand with increasingly decentralized information and an ever-multiplying proliferation of digital documentation. You no longer have to be an insider with access to a top-secret file cabinet if you want to find out about the government's dirtiest secrets. Those secrets are all in a computer somewhere, and if that computer's online, there's a subgroup of people with the skills to access them. Hackers. They're able to trawl through private databases, government or otherwise, and pull out whatever information they want. The advent of the digital age and its hackers doesn't mean more traditional forms of whistleblowing can't still happen too, but the opportunities for whistleblowing and the number of people with those opportunities have grown exponentially. And a shift towards a more diffuse, rogue whistleblowing culture an outsider culture, as Malcolm Gladwell puts it, comes with certain question marks around the term whistleblower and what that figure's motivations might be. The whistleblower, for one, no longer necessarily shares an insider's assumed respect for government and the law. After all, no one questioned that Daniel Ellsberg wanted to improve the U.S. government rather than tear it down. Nor does the whistleblower necessarily respect Washington's rules about prioritizing discretion, which even Ellsberg, contrary to what the courts might have thought, cared about deeply. In fact, the hacker mentality is essentially centered on the idea that discretion, and even privacy more broadly, is irrelevant. Anthropologist Gabriella Coleman describes this mindset by quoting a security expert who once lectured one of her classes. You have to have an innate understanding that a security measure is arbitrary. It's an arbitrary mechanism that does something that's unnatural and therefore can be circumvented in all likelihood. Outside of the hacker's digital world, the equivalent would be looking at a fence blocking off someone's property, deciding that the concept of property is an arbitrary invention of earlier generations, and thus deciding that you have as much right as anyone to hop the fence and take a walk around on the other side. Except in the case of hackers, the fence is a digital security measure, and on the other side, 
are the secrets of industry, government, and even private individuals. Hackers and whistleblowers are far from interchangeable in the post-internet era, because, again, the advent of the digital world doesn't mean traditional whistleblowing can't still happen, but hacking and contemporary whistleblowing do have enough overlap that the hackers' lack of respect for privacy and their ability to circumvent privacy through digital know-how is deeply concerning for many private citizens, which in turn means that contemporary hackers don't necessarily get the public stamp of approval of a man like Ellsberg. That, in turn, gives the government more leeway to go after whistleblowers for everything they're worth in the courts. Still, it's not just whistleblowers that have changed thanks to the digital decentralization of information. The ones hunting them have a very new kind of access, too. And national security agencies have taken lessons from the hackers' anti-privacy approach. While World War I led to the creation of the Espionage Act of 1917, it was in the aftermath of the September 11th attacks that Congress created the Patriot Act. It was a sprawling bill, addressing a broad spectrum of issues relating to terrorism. It includes things like funds to assist the families of terrorism victims, for example. It also included controversial provisions, like the indefinite detainment of immigrants without criminal charges, which was struck down by the Supreme Court as unconstitutional. But today, the Patriot Act is known almost exclusively for one of its subsections. Officially called the Business Records Provision, Section 215 allows the government to ask businesses for records relating to someone who might be involved in terrorism. Presumably, for example, they could ask for a car shop's data on the model of car a terrorist purchased, which would help the government track that person down. But purchase records aren't the only kinds of data the provision makes accessible to the government. The act allows for phone records and other digital metadata created by private citizens, too. When you made a call, where you were, when you made it, and alarmingly, Catching terrorists isn't the only way the National Security Agency, or NSA, ended up using that data. Instead, they used it to breach privacy and security barriers for their own ends. Later on in our whistleblowing special, we'll explore exactly what they did and how the news came out to the public. But for now, remember, in the 21st century, Everyone is playing in the hacker's world. It's a world where security is arbitrary, where everything is up in the air and in the cloud, where no one knows what information will come out next or who the secrets will condemn. That is, a world shaped by men like Julian Assange. Next week, We'll hear about the WikiLeaks founder and his mission to radically transform government transparency, not just in the U.S., but worldwide. His work and relationship to the legal system have set the stage for 21st century whistleblowing and reveal just how few rules there are. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes of Espionage and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easier for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Espionage for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Espionage on Spotify, just open the app and type Espionage in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll be back next week to continue our deep dive into the world of whistleblowing. Espionage was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Espionage was written by Nora Battelle, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher. I'm Carter Roy. <laughs>